2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Among the top news stories, White House National Economic Council Director Gary Cohn has resigned from his post. The White House confirmed today in yet another high-profile departure from the Trump administration in the last several weeks. Cohn served as President Trump's uh, chief economic advisor since the beginning of the administration, which was just a little over a year ago, and he'd been discussing with the president his transition out of the White House for several weeks, so this didn't come as a complete surprise. Cohn Cohn opposed the president's uh, planned tariffs on imports in steel and aluminum. He first announced last week and reportedly tried getting the president to change course. The president has not. White House officials say that uh, Cohn's departure date is to be determined, but it's expected to be in the next few weeks. Now, it's been an honor, said uh, Mr. Cohn, to serve my country and enact pro-growth economic policies to benefit the American people. In particular, the passage of historic tax reform, uh, reform rather, Cohn said in a statement. He went on to say, I'm grateful to the president for giving me the opportunity and I and wish him and the administration success in the future. Well, Mr. Cohn's policy portfolio included tax and retirement, infrastructure, financial system, energy and environment, health care, agriculture, global economics, international trade, development and technology, telecommunications and cyber security. I probably should have told you what wasn't in his portfolio. It might have take, taken less time, but he helped to advance the president's deregulatory agenda to organize his participation in the World Economic Forum in January, and... uh the president said in a statement of his uh, former advisor or soon to be leaving advisor, Gary has been my chief economic advisor, did a superb job in driving our agenda, helping to deliver historic tax cuts and reforms, unleashing the American economy once again. He is a rare talent, and I thank him for his dedicated service to the American people. A White House chief of staff, John Kelly, said Cohn served his country with great distinction and dedicated his skill and leadership to grow at the U.S. economy past historic tax reform. I will miss Having him as a partner in the White House, but he departs, having made a real impact in the lives of the American people. Uh, Kelly said in his statement earlier today. Well, over the summer, Mr. Cohn reportedly drafted a resignation letter following the president's response to a violent uh, violence rather in Charlottesville, Virginia. And his uh, departure comes just one week after White House Communications Director Hope Hicks resigned from her post after serving for several months there. Well, this afternoon, the president pushed back against news reports of a dysfunctional West Wing saying that everybody wants to work in the White House. I like conflict Uh, in a joint press conference with the Swedish prime minister, Stefan Löfven, noting that the West Wing has tremendous energy and that the White House is a great place to be working. That's a quote. Many, many, many people want, uh, want every single job Trump added, uh, that there will be people that change, but said, believe me, everybody wants to work in the White House. They want a piece of the Oval Office. They want a piece of the West Wing, end quote. I might have put it a little differently if I had been asked, but the Trump administration has seen uh, plenty of turnover in the past 14 months. Last month, Hicks stepped down, as I mentioned. A senior communications official who worked closely with Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, Josh Raffel, left his post. Earlier in February, White House Staff Secretary Rob Porter and White House speechwriter David Sorensen left the administration after domestic abuse allegations surfaced uh, publicly as well. Well, the tariffs, as I mentioned, was one of the reasons that his chief economic advisor is stepping away, although that uh, process began some weeks ago. But the president said on Monday morning that his tariffs on steel and aluminum uh, imports may not apply to Mexico and Canada if those countries agree to new and fair NAFTA agreement. In two tweets, the president wrote, we have large trade trade deficits with Mexico and Canada. NAFTA, which is under renegotiation right now, has been a bad deal for the U.S.A. Massive relocation of companies and jobs. Tariffs on steel and aluminum will only come off if a new and fair TAFTA, uh, NAFTA rather agreement is signed. Also, Canada must treat our farmers much better. Highly restrictive. Mexico must do much more on stopping drugs from pouring into the United States. They have not done what needs to be done. Millions of people addicted and dying. End quote. But on Sunday, the president's White House trade advisor, Peter Navarro indicated that Trump would not exempt U.S. allies from the tariffs. We'll Will the president exempt allies like uh, Canada and Europe? Uh, He was asked on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace. Navarro said the uniform consensus is that the tariffs should be across the board. You have to understand, Chris, as soon as uh, as he starts exempting countries, he has to raise tariffs on everybody else. As soon as he exempts one country's uh, country, rather, his phone starts ringing from heads of state and other countries, Navarro said. Global imposition? Wallace asked. Yes, Navarro said. So the uh, Spokesman is apparently at odds with what the president suggested might make some uh, some change in all of this. Meanwhile, former Trump campaign aide Sam Nunberg vowed on Monday to refuse a subpoena from special counsel Robert Mueller's team to appear before a grand jury, jury rather this week as part of the Russia probe defiantly claiming let him arrest me. Mr. Mueller uh, should understand I am not going in on Friday He said, uh, uh, speaking to The Washington Post, he told the outlet on Monday that uh, Mueller's team requested records from him of conversations he had with outgoing White House communications director Hope Hicks, former White House strategist Steve Bannon, Trump attorney Michael Cohen, um, former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski and advisor Roger Stone all worked with Nunberg on the campaign. I'm not spending 80 hours going over my emails with Roger Stone and Steve Bannon and producing them, Nunberg said. Uh, Donald Trump won the election on his own. His campaign, he campaigned his expletive off, and there is uh, nobody who hates him more than me, end quote. Well, Nunberg has had a long and colorful history with Trump. He was one of Trump's earliest political advisors, helping him connect with conservative audiences ahead of the 2016 presidential run. Nunberg, though, was uh, fired in 2014 after an unflattering piece about Trump ran in BuzzFeed, a communications aide who helped arrange the interview with BuzzFeed to take place. Nunberg was blamed by Trump for the bad press. Nunberg was uh, rehired. Fired for the campaign, but was fired again by Trump in 2015 after past racially charged Facebook posts resurfaced. Later during the campaign, Trump sued Nunberg for $10 million, accusing him of breaching a confidentiality agreement. The lawsuit was settled later on. Nunberg was uh, featured in the recent Michael Wolff book *Fire and Fury*. Recently, sat for a voluntary interview with Mueller. Saying, I was uh, briefly part of the Trump campaign and uh, has been the president's friend and advisor for decades and would expect uh, that Mueller's team would at some point ask for any documents or emails sent or written by me. But let me reiterate, I have no knowledge or involvement in Russian collusion or any other inappropriate act, Stone told Fox News during that interview. Well... Let's see. As I mentioned, the president on Tuesday asserted that he likes and wants conflict among his aides in the White House as he pushed back against reports of a dysfunctional West Wing. The statement sounded a bit self-indulgent to me, but the president went on to say it's tough uh, speaking about working in the White House during a joint news conference this afternoon with Swedish Prime Minister Stefan Lofvin. The president said, I like having two people with different points of view, and I certainly have that. And then I make a decision, but I like watching it. I like Seeing it, and I think it's the very best way to go. Well, we'll see. As many of his staff members do, just that. Go. Eighteen, or rather, fifteen minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Quick break.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Is this right? Five ten. All right, ten minutes after five o'clock. Glad to have you with us. Well, if you had the opportunity in the previous hour to hear my conversation with Ron Rhodes, I thought this might be of some interesting. The president of Guatemala, Jimmy Morales, announced in Washington on Sunday that his country is going to follow the president's lead on Jerusalem and move its embassy to the city as well two days after the U.S. does in May. Now, there was some speculation when the announcement was made earlier, I guess it was late last year rather than earlier this year, uh, that it would be uh, possibly two to three years before any movement would actually occur, we now know that the plan is that it will be moved, the U.S. embassy, in May. And apparently a couple of days after that, the Guatemalan embassy will be moved as well. Well, addressing the American Israel Public Affairs Committee policy conference, Morales said the decision shows his country's solidarity with the people of Israel, and we are sure that many countries will follow in our footsteps. He noted that Guatemala has historically had a strong pro-Israel record. When the U.N. voted on November the 29th, 1947, to partition the territory between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River into the Jewish state and an Arab one, Guatemala, he recalled, promoted and was among the first to cast their vote for the establishment of the state of Israel. In 1959, Guatemala was the first nation to open an embassy in Jerusalem, and on the December 24th last year, it was the first to join the U.S. and announce it, too, would return its embassy to the city. I would like to thank President Trump for leading the way, he said. His courageous decision has encouraged us to do what's right, Morales said. It's important to be among the first, but it is more important to do what is right. He said it was Guatemala's sovereign decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, and in May, as Israel celebrates its 70th anniversary. Two days after the United States moves its embassy, Guatemala will return and permanently move its embassy to Jerusalem as well. Now, Morales is an evangelical Christian. He met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Washington over the weekend, left the podium uh, to a standing ovation. Meanwhile, President Trump's announcement last December, recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, signaling plans to move the embassy from Tel Aviv, a longstanding requirement in U.S. law, which presidents up to now have waived, prompted an angry response from many countries. The U.N. General Sen- Assembly, rather, then adopted a resolution condemning the decision and demanding that the move be rescinded. Guatemala was one of just eight countries to vote with the United States against that measure, uh, which passed 128 to 9. The eight were Israel, Guatemala's neighbor Honduras, the small African country of Togo, and the Pacific Island nations of uh, Nauru, Palau, Marshall Islands, and Micronesia. Even though there were only nine of us from across the world, we have total certainty and conviction that this is the correct route. Guatemala's official news agency quoted Morales as saying after that vote. So at least there will be two uh, embassies in Jerusalem in May. Well, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Bob Goodlott and Representative Trey Gowdy today demanded the appointment of a special counsel to investigate conflicts of interest and decisions made and not made by current and former Justice Department officials in 2016 and 2017, making note that the public interest requires the action. Now, they're not required to get the special counsel they're demanding, as Trey Gowdy in an interview this afternoon stated. But he says they do have a good chance, or at least a good case, for establishing one. Gowdy and Goodlot, both Republicans, one from South Carolina, the other Virginia, pinned that letter on Tuesday to Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Matters have arisen, both recently and otherwise, which necessitate the appointment of a special counsel. We do not make this observation and attendant uh, request lightly, Gowdy and Goodlot wrote. They pointed specifically toward the use of the infamous anti-Trump dossier used in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to obtain a warrant to spy on former Trump campaign adviser Carter Page. There is evidence of bias trending toward animus among those charged with investigating serious cases, they wrote. There is evidence political opposition research was used in court filings. There is evidence this political opposition research was neither vetted before it was used nor fully revealed. To, be relevant, uh, to the relevant tribunal. They added, questions have arisen with the FISA process and these questions and concerns threaten to impugn both public and congressional confidence in significant counterintelligence program processes and those charged with overseeing and implementing these counterintelligence processes. Well, Gowdy and Goodlot wrote that because the decisions of both former and current Department of Justice and FBI officials are at issue, they do not believe the Department of Justice is capable of investigating the fact and in, in the fashion likely to garner public confidence. Well, last week, uh, Jeff Sessions announced that Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz would investigate allegations of government surveillance abuse. In light of memos released on Capitol Hill by the House Intelligence Committee, which suggested, at least on the Republican side, that the dossier complied, uh, compiled, rather, by ex-British intelligence officer Christopher Steele was used to obtain the FISA warrant. Uh, To surveil Page. President Trump, though, blasted Sessions' decision, saying he appointed an Obama guy to investigate potentially massive FISA abuse. And of course, the uh, uh, inspector general has the capacity and the power to issue a report, but not to subpoena or to convict if, in fact, wrongdoing what has occurred. Well, Mr. Horowitz also is investigating former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe and whether he wanted to avoid taking action on new Clinton emails found on disgraced Democratic New York representative Anthony Weiner's laptop, reports said. And according to records, McCabe knew about the emails belonging to Hillary Clinton in September of 2016 but did not choose to brief former FBI Director James Comey until October of the same year, prompting the reopening of the Clinton email investigation just one week before the presidential election. And it goes on. Again, they've requested a special counsel. They're not uh, entitled to one necessarily. We'll follow uh, what happens next and whether or not that request is ultimately granted. 16 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on this beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Well, the Florida Senate rejected a proposal to ban assault weapons. They voted for a measure to arm some teachers weeks after 17 people were killed in the deadliest high school shooting in U.S. history. An amendment that would have banned assault weapons attached to a wider bill failed on Saturday in a largely party-line vote in response to the February 14 killing of 14 students and three faculty at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Fort Lauderdale, suburb of Parkland. The vote was 20 to 17 against the assault weapon ban, with two Republicans joining all of the Senate's Democrats, 15 of them in support of the proposal, the Miami Herald reported. The full bill, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Hill High School Public Safety Act, is expected to pass the uh, state Senate on Monday, then go to the Florida House. After the Senate rejected the ban, Stoneman Douglas student. uh, Jaslyn Corrin tweeted, this breaks my heart, but we will not let this ruin our movement. This is for the kids. will fellow classmates... Uh, who became one of the school's leading activists on gun safety, tweeted elections are going to be fun. Of course, he's not old enough to vote. Also, an amendment to remove a provision to train and arm some teachers failed. The bill raises the minimum age to buy a rifle or a shotgun to 21 from 18 and bans the use, sale, and possession of bump stocks, which were used in the October 1st shooting deaths of 58 people in Las Vegas. The device effectively turns semi-automatic weapons into automatic weapons. That bill includes $400 million dollars in funding for schools to address mental health issues, the Herald reported. Uh, one 19-year-old, the killer who was expelled from the school, had a history of run-ins with the law, according to school officials, and the Broward County School System and Sheriff's Department have been criticized for not acting on red flags, some 40 of them, 40-plus, on his mental health problems and potentially violent behavior. But of course, hindsight is always twenty-twenty. Uh, Well, it was pointed out that uh, gun control uh, two gun control advocates that uh, banning assault weapons had, in fact, been the policy before. And uh, those who opposed it say it didn't work. Well, maybe they were too young to know or had faulty memories. But whatever the reason, all those pushing for a ban on assault weapons, the writer in um, Investor's Business Daily points out in the wake of the Florida school shooting, ignore the fact that the last time the country imposed such a ban, it failed to make a measurable difference. Now, they argue that gun control advocates were ecstatic when President Trump appeared to support a ban on semi-automatic weapons. The White House later issued a statement that he still opposes a ban. Not quite sure how to reconcile the two, but nevertheless... The writer goes on that Democrats have already introduced two bills that would outlaw the sale of weapons like the AR-15, based mainly on various cosmetic features of the gun and limit the size of magazines allowed. And the press has been playing up the issue with relentless fervor. What nobody seems to want to acknowledge, however, is that the very ban being proposed by Democrats was in effect for 10 years, from 1994 to 2004. It was part of a larger crime bill signed by President Clinton after a spate of shootings created a similar outrage in the public, like today polls showed widespread support for the ban and even President Reagan backed it. Nevertheless, Clinton barely mentioned the gun ban in his lengthy remarks on the broader crime bill saying only that we will finally ban these assault weapons from our streets that have no purpose other than to kill. Well, like the current proposals, the previous ban forbade the sale of certain menacing-looking semi-automatic rifles and handguns and banned the sale of magazines that could hold more than 10 rounds. Like the current proposals, it grandfathered in assault weapons sold before the ban went into effect. Well, despite Clinton's apparent effort to downplay the ban when he signed it into law, it had a large political impact, contributing to the Democrats losing control of the House in 1994. And so when the ban's 10-year time limit was up, Congress, Republican and Democrat, didn't bother to renew it, despite the fact that President Bush supported its renewal. So did the previous assault weapons ban work? That's the most important question. It turns out that various independent studies came to the same conclusion. The ban had no measurable impact on the number of shootings or the the number of shooting deaths while it was in effect. And that seems counterintuitive. One would assume a ban would have an impact, but apparently it did not. A 2005 report from the National Research Council, for example, noted that a recent evaluation of the short-term effects of the 94 federal assault weapon ban did not reveal any clear impacts on gun violence outcomes. A 2004 study sponsored by the National Institute of Justice found that while the ban appeared to have reduced the number of crimes committed with assault weapons, any benefits were likely to have been outweighed by steady or rising use of non band semi-automatics. As a result, the justice uh, study found that there has been no discernible reduction in the lethality or injuriousness of gun violence based on indicators like the percentage of gun crimes resulting in death or the share of gunfire incidents resulting in injury well the main reason the failure of the ban uh, for the failure of the ban uh, and it makes a difference is assault weapons account for a tiny share of gun crimes less than 6% even among mass shootings most uh, didn't involve an assault weapon as currently defined in the decade before the ban went into effect Mass shootings didn't stop during the ban either. There were 16 while the ban was in effect, which resulted in 237 deaths or injuries. In fact, it was while the ban was in effect that the Columbine High School massacre happened, in which 13 students were killed and 24 injured. What's more, gun deaths have steadily declined since 94, even though the rate of gun ownership has climbed. Democrats pushing for an assault weapons ban today know that getting it approved in an election year by a Republican-controlled Congress is a fantasy. This is nothing more than a political ploy. But the bigger and more reprehensible fantasy is the one of being peddled by uh, advocates, namely that such a ban would have any meaningful impact on gun deaths or mass shootings. Playing on the emotions of the public while offering them false hopes is the exact opposite of responsible leadership. Again, it seems counterintuitive that there wouldn't be a decline or it wouldn't have some impact on mass shootings. But apparently, given these studies and what we've seen uh, in terms of the research and the numbers, uh, it did not. Uh, There are serious problems in our culture. Gun uh, use and violence is certainly one of them, but it's not uh, the only one. Uh, And again, I hope that the emphasis is on uh, coming up with real solutions that are going to have an impact if, in fact, that's even possible and I'm not altogether convinced that it is. Meanwhile, a federal judge ruled on Monday that the president's phase out of the Obama era DACA program is legal, adding heft to the administration's defense but doing little to solve the ongoing court quagmire. While well, the ruling doesn't overturn two other federal courts who had previously blocked the phase out which was supposed to take effect on Monday, but it does offer a needed boost as the Justice Department appeals those other two rulings. Judge Roger W. Titus, a Bush appointee to the bench in Maryland, said the judges in California and New York who blocked the phase-out attempted to substitute their own judgments for that of Homeland Security Department crossing constitutional lines in order to strike at Mr. Trump's policies. Judge Titus went even further, praising the Trump administration for the way it handled the situation with a six-month phase-out. This decision took control of a pell-mell situation Situation and provided Congress, the branch of government charged with determining immigration policy, an opportunity to remedy it. Given the reasonable belief that DACA was unlawful, the decision to wind down DACA in an orderly manner was rational, the judge wrote. DACA is the 2012 program Mr. Obama created using executive authority to protect hundreds of thousands of DREAMers from deportation and to give them a foothold in society. Some 683,000 people were being protected as of January 31st. Those are the ones who signed up for the program. And the president did admit that he did not have the executive authority to do so and that the program would likely not uh, stand court muster, but nonetheless, it has stood up until this point. The program was always legally questionable. Mr. Trump, last September, facing threats of lawsuits from Texas and other states, announced his phase-out with a final deadline of March the 5th. Immigration rights groups across the country objected. Many of them sued at least five cases in California, two in New York, one in Washington, D.C., one in Maryland. The judge in California case uh, ruled in January, imposing a nationwide A ban on the phase out in an expansive opinion blasting the administration for its handling. A judge in New York cases uh, last month issued a more carefully crafted ruling but reached the same conclusion that the DACA program itself is legal, as Mr. Obama Uh, wrote it, and that the Trump administration didn't give a good enough justification for its phase-out, making it arbitrary. Judge Titus, though, said the administration was facing a credible legal threat from Texas, and the attorney general had doubts about mounting a defense, so the Homeland Security Department's decision was not arbitrary. And he also took on those who said Mr. Trump's past comments about illegal immigrants soured the case. So, two down, one up. And again, uh, the Supreme Court is likely ultimately to resolve uh, this situation once it finally makes its way through the process and into uh, into their hands. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 31 minutes after five o'clock.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: 36 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, after serving 40 years in the U.S. Senate, Senator Thad Cochran, he's a Republican out of Mississippi, rather, announced uh, that he would resign effective April 1st because of health issues. Well, his decision means both Mississippi Senate seats are in play for the 2018 midterm elections. Pretty significant. Well, the state's primary is slated for June the 5th, but the Cochran The fact that he's leaving Capitol Hill early, Uh, some of the implications with the vacant seat there, it's up to the Republican governor, Phil Bryant, to appoint a replacement within 10 days after receiving official notice of the vacancy. And while the governor doesn't have to appoint someone in his own party, he will pick a conservative Republican. According to the governor's uh, communications director, whoever Bryant appoints will run for in the special election, which will be held on November the 6th, according to the lieutenant governor there. The winner of that race will then serve out the remainder of Cochran's term through January of 2021, Mississippi election law dictates. According to state law, if the Senate seat had become vacant in a year that a state or congressional election wasn't already being held, then the governor would have to set a special election date. Former Representative Mike uh, Espy, a Democrat, has already announced his strong intention to run for that empty seat or soon to be empty, empty seat rather. I just learned of the uh, pending resignation of Senator Cochran, a person I admire and respect and who has done so much for Mississippi over his tenure. Um, Espy, who has uh, served as a former Bill Clinton's agriculture secretary, said in a statement and that uh, is going to be something of a matchup in the days ahead following the governor's appointment and the special Election. Well, the Democratic mayor's uh, warning to illegal immigrants in an upcoming ICE raid in Northern California may have led to a number of illegal immigrants with violent and sex related convictions evading capture and deportation. Oakland Mayor Libby Schaeff uh, tweeted out an impending warning of the four day raid last week, alerting targeted individuals to the imminent arrests and infuriating Immigration and Customs Enforcement or ICE officials who say. Uh, that many more could have been caught if they hadn't been warned. Well, the raid led to the arrest of 232 illegal immigrants in the San Francisco Bay Area, 180 of which, I said, were either convicted criminals, had uh, it been issued a final order of removal and failed to depart the United States or had been previously removed from the country and had come back illegally. Well, the arrests included 115 who had prior felony convictions for serious or violent offenses, such as child sex crimes, weapons charges, assault, or had uh, past convictions for significant or multiple misdemeanors. But acting ICE director Tom Homan uh, said that Schaeff's warning meant there were roughly 800 uh, that were they were unable to locate. What she did is no better than a gang lookout yelling police when police cruisers come into the neighborhood, except she did it To the entire community, this is beyond the pale, he went on to say. This is a whole new low to intentionally warn criminals that law enforcement is coming. Well, uh one uh, rather a spokesperson for ICE gave uh, Fox News examples of some of the unsavory characters who evaded officials during that raid that they would otherwise have expected to uh, to catch. One Mexican citizen had convictions for unlawful sexual contact with a minor and a conviction for driving under the influence and had been deported in 2003. Another who evaded capture had a conviction for um uh, drugging a victim in 2012 and engaging in sexual activity as well as a DUI from the year from that year uh, rather this year that Mexican citizen had also been previously deported in 2013 another uh, previously deported in 2014 for a conviction for armed robbery also evaded capture and while the individuals dodged authorities it's also not clear if there were Uh, if there was a uh, definitive link between Shafe's statement and their disappearance. An official briefed on the plans that the Department of Homeland Security say... Told the New York Times rather that ICE agents typically find only around thirty percent of their targeted uh, their targets rather during a sweep, meaning that many of the eight hundred who evaded capture may not have been caught either way. But Chafe came under intense national pressure, including from the White House, for her actions. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said the Department of Justice was conducting a review, but Chafe stood what uh, stood by rather what she said: "I did what I believe was right for my community as well as to protect public safety." Uh, She was speaking, uh, according to NBC uh, Bay Area, people should be able to live without fear or panic and know that their rights and responsibilities as well as their recourses. Well, of course, if you're looking for known criminals within the system. I'm not sure that that sentiment applies. Among those caught in the raid were immigrants with a lengthy list of convictions, including aggravated assault, murder, hit and run, lewd acts with a minor, burglary, cruelty toward a child, indecent exposure, domestic violence, drug trafficking, battery, sex offenses, and false imprisonment. In a press release, uh, ICE pointed to the case of uh, one uh, man, a gang member in particular, who'd been deported four times, had convictions, including assault with a deadly weapon, burglary, hit-and-run causing an injury and evasion of the police officer. Not sure how that protects the broader community, both immigrant and non. Another deportee was a gang member with convictions for, among other things, possession of a dangerous weapon, spousal abuse, burglary, battery of a police officer, and so on. Uh, So, uh, again, her actions are being reviewed, given the fact that they were looking for known criminals who had been convicted or had been deported from the United States Previously, Well, the budget deal signed earlier this month by the president provides additional money for the military in desperate need of rebuilding. Well, the funding boost will help fill rather critical shortages, replace worn out equipment, train formations. But money can't fix one of America's greatest security challenges. The reality that fully 71 percent of the country's youth can't qualify to join the military. Even the best planes, ships and tanks can't avail without... um, Enough qualified volunteers to fill the ranks. Well, what dequalifies, or rather disqualifies, so many from serving? Well, for some, it's a lack of a high school degree. That's understandable. For others, an extensive criminal record. But the biggest obstacle of all is poor health and fitness. It's not that the fitness standards are overtly. Uh, Rather overly strict, recruits don't have to be lean, mean fighting machines to enlist, but they can't be obese or suffering from a significant chronic health issue. Well, over half of all Americans aged 17 to 24 have disqualifying weight or chronic health issues. Yes, the military takes pride in transforming volunteers into the best version of themselves, but allowing obese or unhealthy Americans to enlist places them at a much greater risk of injury. A recent study published in the Journal of Public Health Management and Practice found a direct correlation between injury rates in Army basic camp and the recruits' physical fitness at the time they entered service. This is a problem reflective of American society. One in three adults and one in five kids are obese. Ninety-one percent of our kids live on a poor diet, and one-quarter of our youth spend three or more hours per day watching television or other smaller screens. We often debate the validity of claims of American exceptionalism, the belief that the United States is special. In one area, however, that debate is settled. The U.S. is by far the fattest country in the world with a whopping 38.2 percent obesity rate. Mexico at 32.5 percent is a distant second. National security requires that our armed forces be able to recruit as many Americans as are needed to fulfill their mission. Today, serious threats to our security may be found all around the world, making the need for a capable and lethal force as important as ever. Well, some have suggested enlisting illegal immigrants to fill the ranks, offering them the promise of citizenship in exchange for their service, overlooking the challenge of conducting background checks on this population. What type of statement doesn't... uh, Does it make when we cannot uh, find sufficient numbers of qualified volunteers among an overall population of 323 million uh, that uh, we must resort effectively to foreign mercenaries to defend the country? It is a growing security, national security crisis so what can we do to address the problem of rampant physical unfitness well few tools present themselves at the national level but one thing the president could do or do and do quickly rather is to appoint motivated and prominent americans to serve on his council on fitness sports and nutrition it's been done before i remember when i did um sit-ups for president kennedy's uh, council on fitness and i exceeded the number that was um Uh, designated as being uh, physically fit and you'd win some kind of award or designation. So resorting back to something like that, these council members wouldn't only give uh, advice on this issue. They would also serve as role models for young Americans. One thing that's currently being considered in the midst of what they're calling a national security crisis. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Daylight Saving Time is almost here. I can't believe we're already into March, but of course we are. It seems like it was just days ago that we were celebrating Christmas and ringing in the new year. But um, Daylight Saving Time is almost here. And by the way, it's turning 100 years old. Now, it survived the Great Depression. It survived World War II. Uh, endless gnashing of teeth about whether it's good or bad. And this month, it celebrates its 100th birthday here in the United States. And, of course, it's not celebrating anything. It's sort of an inanimate concept, but you get the idea. Well, Daylight Saving Time started its annual eight-month run at, uh, rather will start, at 2 a.m. Sunday, uh, first enacted by the federal government in March of 1918. The 19th, to be more precise, that was during World War I, and it was designed to be a way to conserve coal. And even though it was halted nationally later that very same year, it persisted in some form at local or state levels for decades before being finally officially recognized again nationally. And that was um, clear in 1966 by the Uniform Time Act. Now, don't you wish it was just a matter of declaring uh, this is what time will be and you could have some real impact on it. Well, we're just sort of shifting our waking hours. But to many, a minor annoyance Uh, to some. It's a bit of a relief. Daylight saving time reminds us of the sun's daily effect on everybody's life. It tells us spring is on its way and it will be uh, in place here very shortly. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, the hours that we keep here at the radio station, at least uh, for Clark and me, we come in. Well, for me, I come in earlier, and sometimes you come in and it's, you know, it's not very light out. At the end of the day, it's it's bleak. It's dark. I'm sometimes a little nervous going into the parking lot because it's just bleak. It's um, lightening up just a bit these um, more recent days, but... Uh, I like daylight saving time because it gives us more daylight, of course. Well, you might be surprised to learn that the Department of Transportation is in charge of daylight saving time in all time zones in the United States, as if they have any real power over time. Uh, Because time standards are important for many modes of transportation, according to the department's website, the Department of Transportation is charged with overseeing how we relate to time. The department says daylight saving time is observed because it saves energy, it saves lives by preventing traffic accidents and also reduces crime. There's an ongoing debate as to whether or not that's altogether accurate, but those are the reasons that the Department of Transportation have been given oversight over daylight saving time. And it's um, daylight saving, not savings but saving singular time, by the way. Uh, The agency boasts people tend to spend more time outside during daylight saving time, meaning they run household appliances and lights less during those eight months. Also, the Department of Transportation said it uh, prevents traffic incidents because people are driving around more during the light hours. And it also is a crime deterrent, again, because uh, people are out during the daylight and not at, uh, at night when more crime occurs. Well, in 2007, the federal government expanded daylight saving time in order to reduce energy consumption. And daylight saving time now accounts for about 65 percent of the year. Well, as um, you're probably not surprised to learn, not everybody agrees it offers energy saving benefit. Some studies claim that time switch saves energy on lighting, but it's surpassed by the um, usage increases for heating and air conditioning and whether or not it observes uh, Uh, Whether or not rather to observe daylight saving time is uh, purely a state matter. So how a state determines that through law, resolution or executive order is up to them. The state would just need to let the department and the rest of the country know uh, they no longer observe daylight saving time if Um, That is their decision. Hawaii and most of Arizona don't take part in daylight saving time, which has to be a little confusing in Arizona. If only part of the state does, the other part doesn't. Arizona receives ample sunlight opted out in 1968. Certain Native American reservations in Arizona still participate. Other non observers are the American Samoa, Guam. Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. Lots of light there, apparently. Not everybody agrees it offers energy-saving benefits. Some studies claim the time switch saves energy on lighting, but again, not the other ways. Whether or not to observe... is uh, just up to uh, the individual states. And while states and territories have given daylight saving time the heave-ho, a movement aimed at throwing a little more sunlight onto the cold winter days, is slowly gaining some traction all across the country. 26 states considered taking daylight saving time permanent, making it permanent last year according to Time Zone, which is a group tracking and promoting the effort. However, while ditching daylight saving time involves a state merely notifying the Department of Transportation, enacting it year-round is a more involved procedure, including approval by Congress. A state cannot permanently stay on daylight saving time under current federal law, according to the Department of Transportation. Florida could become the first state to choose to stay on daylight saving time year-round under a proposed uh, proposal working its way through the state legislature. Florida State Senator Greg Stube is behind the Sunshine Protection Act of 2018, as if the state could actually protect sunshine, uh, which would put an end to the twice-a-year routine of moving the clock either an hour ahead or an hour behind. The senator thinks if Florida takes a stand, the idea will spread across the country. Folks in the panhandle of the state balked at the idea. As of now, Florida would continue to be in two time zones, with the majority of the state in eastern time and the small portion of the panhandle in central time. Um, Others see daylight saving time as a, a moment to check on some household duties that have fallen by the wayside. Many fire departments suggest people check their smoke and carbon monoxide detectors when they adjust their clocks. I do it at the first of the year. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration advises people to have their vehicles checked for safety recalls around daylight saving time. If the late uh, sunlight isn't your thing, the clocks turn back at um, 2 a.m. on November the 4th. But in the meantime, we are looking ahead and uh, daylight saving time is just around the corner. Taking a look at our guests for the remainder of the week tomorrow, we're going to talk with Scott Husing. We actually had him on uh, on the books for last week and he had to catch a a plane. Uh, during our showtime last week and called sort of at the last minute to say, oh, can you have a little grace and move me to another day? We have now done that. So Scott Husing, who is the author of Echo in Ramadi, will be with us uh, tomorrow during the first hour. The first-hand story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city. It's a riveting account of their experience. We certainly have followed what's happened there from our vantage point of safety here in the United States, reading about some of the harrowing events there. But he is going to offer a firsthand account count of U.S. Marines on the ground in Iraq's deadliest uh, city, giving us some notion of what men and women in uniform face in some of these uh, hot spots. And then on Thursday, Philip Lawler will be our guest. It's an interesting book. He is a faithful Catholic, but the book is titled The Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock. And he's going to talk with us about the challenges that they are facing currently within the the Catholic Church as the Pope is moving in a direction different from what many anticipated would in fact be the case or what they argue is Orthodox Catholicism. So look forward to a hearing from him on that. You may know that I am not a Catholic. So this is an interesting perspective from someone inside the Catholic Church. So that's coming up on Thursday, and then on Friday, hopefully we'll just lighten up and take a look at the lighter side of the news. A couple of things I want to draw your attention to. Number one, uh, Christian education, as you know, is important for many families, and we are offering school tuition discounts, which is our Uh, our practice at about this time of year so if you've thought about Christian education and would like to take advantage of discounts of up to 40% KPDQ listeners can do just that, save up to 40% on Christian school tuition the schools currently include but are not limited to Cornerstone Christian Academy Valor Christian School North Clackamas Christian School, Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School, Holy Cross Catholic Church, or Catholic School rather Guardi Christian School and Grace Lutheran School, you need to go to KPDQ Q.com. There are schools being added throughout the month, and we're going to be interviewing representatives from each of those schools in the days ahead. But this is a great opportunity to enjoy some significant savings. And again, we're talking of up to 40% on these tuitions. And again, we'll be adding new schools, new tuitions all throughout the month. So stay tuned to get your discount. Visit ListenerSavings.com. And finally, on March the 10th, today's the 6th, you can do the math, you can join KPDQ for a night of clean comedy with Johnny W. And by the way, I've gone onto YouTube to actually listen to this guy because, you know, the fact that you refer to yourself as a comedian doesn't mean you're necessarily funny. This guy's funny. He's also a very talented musician. Um, He has his own mix of musical chops, offbeat stand-up. Johnny W. is going to bring a hilarious comedy experience for the whole family. It's happening on Saturday, March the 10th. That's this Saturday at East Hill Church in Gresham. You can find out more. Get your tickets now at kpdq.com or through the KPDQ mobile app well i want to thank clark hilton for engineering today's program james blend for producing and thank you for making the georgine rice show part of your day have a great night thanks
1: for listening to the georgine rice show podcast if you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests please visit the show at kpdq.com or on facebook follow the show on twitter at grice show and like us on facebook and join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times on
0: 93.9 KPDQ